0: Welcome to episode 80 of Junk Filter. My name is Jesse Hawken, and my special guest is Aswin Subsang. He's a senior political reporter, currently for the Daily Beast, but coming soon to Rolling Stone. He's also the co-host of the Fever Dreams podcast and the co-author of the book, Sinking in the Swamp, How Trump's Minions and Misfits Poisoned Washington. Joining me from Cincinnati, Ohio... Swin, welcome to Junk Filter. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, I don't want
1: to gush too much and lavish too much praise upon you, but I really am incredibly happy to be here. I've been looking forward to this conversation at least ever since Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine earlier this year. Um, I represent uh, my street gang known as the Daily Beast Fever Dreams podcast. You represent my favorite, uh, 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 shall we say, cinema podcast on the World Wide Web, or at least on the Canadian web and the American web. I can't speak to the uh, to the Japanese or the South Korean ones at the moment, but uh, because of how much I admire your work, let's set aside whatever potential uh, Jets and Sharks podcast beef we could have between our two pods and just um, uh, just have fun on this recording.
0: Our subject for today is the 1988 Walter Hill action film, Red Heat starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's a KGB cop who has to work with Chicago cop Jim Belushi to catch a gangster from the Soviet Union on the loose in the USA. Swin was very eager to come on the show to discuss this one. And the funny part is that while we were planning to do this show anyway, Arnold put out a video where he made a personal appeal to the Russian people to tell them the truth about the war in Ukraine, and he even mentioned Red Heat in his video.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's extra hilarious that he mentioned the movie if you know jack shit about the movie. Like if you've seen even a frame of a scene in which he is portraying as someone who I believe is a refugee, or his family were refugees from totalitarian communism. Uh, he's portraying a comically lovable Soviet authoritarian cop figure. That is that is the point of his character in the movie. <laughs>
2: But before I talk about the harsh realities, let me just tell you about the Russian who became my hero. In 1961, when I was 14 years old, a very good friend of mine invited me to come to Vienna and to watch the World Weightlifting Championships. I was in the audience when Yuri Petrovich Vlasov won the World Championship title, becoming the first human being to lift 200 kilograms over his head. Somehow a friend of mine got me backstage. All of a sudden there I was, a 14 year old boy standing in front of the strongest man in the world. I couldn't believe it. He reached out to shake my hand. <laughs> I mean, I still had a boy's hand. He had this powerful man's hand that swallowed mine. But he was kind. And he smiled at me. I would never forget that day. Never. My connections to Russia didn't stop there by the way. Oh, it actually deepened when I traveled there with bodybuilding and for my movies and met all my Russian fans. And then one of those trips I remember, I met Yuri Vlasov once again. It was in Moscow during the filming of Red Heat, which was the first American movie allowed to film in Red Square. Now he and I spent the whole day together. He was so thoughtful, so kind, and so smart, and of course, very giving. He gave me this beautiful blue coffee cup. And ever since then, I've been drinking my coffee out of every morning.
0: (laughs) This will be a conversation about Red Heat, but I also hope to talk to you about the evolution of the portrayal of the Soviet Union in American movies in the 80s. This movie was made during the end of the arms race. And uh, throughout the 80s, the Soviet Union evolved from Brezhnev to Gorbachev. And towards the end of the Cold War, American films started to lighten up on the rivalry, which I think peaked in the mid-80s with films like Red Dawn, Invasion USA, and Rocky IV.
1: Right. And this movie, uh, like Gorbachev, if I recall correctly, came to power in 1985. This movie came out in 1988, the year before the fall of the Berlin Wall. So this movie is, it's an American movie, but it is truly the most Gorbachev era movie of maybe any piece of popular entertainment I've ever seen uh, because it does have this sort of feeling of a, a, uh, a thawing of the cold war, not a complete ending of it, but there was definitely a moment of, as um, one of the politicians I've, loathe most um, in terms of 20th century politics, it has the feeling of what Margaret Thatcher said about Gorbachev when he came to power in the Soviet Union, that I I like Gorbachev, I think we can do business. This movie has that feel to it, that the, uh, uh, I mean, I know it's weird to say this about liberal Hollywood, even during the 1980s, but it was a moment when the conservatism and the rah, 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 Uh, um, um, excesses of the Reagan era that were so popular in so many Hollywood films was starting to give way towards a, okay, maybe we can have a bit of a kumbaya moment now that the Cuban missile crisis has been over for decades.
0: I mean, this movie is, um, it's, I mean, I do also want to talk to you about how people in Russia feel about this film because I did a little research um, on that But, you know, one thing that you really have to say about Red Heat right off the bat is that it's a movie that one of the few, it's one of the few American movies that depicts a Soviet character positively. But what is it about the Soviet Union that this film respects the most That's the question you have to ask yourself. It's harsh
1: policing tactics (laughs) and the fact that they don't have to give a shit about things like Miranda rights. Hence setting up one of the funniest scenes in the movie. (laughs) I'm Ivan Danko, Moscow
2: special police. I'm here to track down dangerous Soviet criminal. A Chicago police officer is helping me. A Chicago cop never relinquishes his weapon. Here. Now I know why we invented vodka. Arnold Schwarzenegger, James Belushi,
0: Red Heat. Let's talk first about how you saw this movie for the first time. I saw it in a movie theater, but I was wondering how you got to see it. Um, My close friend and I, uh, his name is Julius. He officiated at my wedding
1: um, uh, a few years back. Uh, One of the things we loved, really loved doing when we were growing up together and particularly when we were in high school was just watching movies, overanalyzing them, laughing about them, having a beer or two or three or maybe more and just laughing our heads off at um, uh, 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 cheesy but well-made uh, movies, particularly action movies. So remember what a video store was? Back when Blockbuster was a thing and there wasn't just literally one of them still operating in the United States. Um, If I recall correctly, we were just browsing, trying to figure out what we were going to get for that evening uh, because there weren't any, there wasn't anything else we wanted to do. We just wanted to chill out and watch a movie. So we saw this Arnold in like a fuzzy Soviet hat or something, DVD cover. And I looked at the back and said, Director Walter Hill. And we loved Walter Hill. I still do. I, I hope my friend still does. So we were like, Oh my God, it has a Belushi in it. Um, <laughs> oh, we, we gotta watch this movie. I I I don't need to see or hear anything else about the movie. We need to rent it. So we just watched it together, not really knowing what to expect. And we were just, just crying, laughing at how awesome this movie was the action sequences were pretty dope and also just the humor of it which we'll get into it more in a moment which as you sort of teased earlier has a lot to do with the uh, uh, um, uh, kind of pro-soviet hijinks of the movie we just couldn't believe what we were watching and that this movie actually got made in the late 80s. Um, it, it, it was just so fascinated by it. I still remember the first time we watched it together all the way through. And it was just marvelous. It was spectacular. The the, the, the movie is an utter inspiration for anybody who,
0: who cares about that particular moment of American life and politics. This is, I guess, a, a Schwarzenegger movie that is kind of considered a lesser work. It was sort of after Predator. It was sort of... On his way to sort of doing the sort of the more obvious comedies like uh, the Ivan Reitman stuff like Twins and mm-hmm. Kindergarten Cop. But this was like an example of Arnold starting to lean into the sort of the comic potential of his persona, which you, you saw, also saw in stuff like Commando.
1: But the most deadpan performance he's maybe ever done that is the yeah. best thing about him it's, it's if you took jingle all the way and then made it a, like a snuff film like.
0: I, I want to read you a quote from Walter Hill he had longed to work with Schwarzenegger but he was trying to come up with the right vehicle for him and he said um, when this movie came out in an interview in the Chicago Tribune Walter Hill said I didn't want to do sci-fi and it's tough to use Arnold credibly in an American context with his accent. I thought it would be interesting if he could play a Russian cop in the U.S. I wanted to do a traditional John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, larger-than-life movie. Then you ask the question, will the American audience accept an unapologetic Soviet hero, someone who will not defect at the end of the movie? Schwarzenegger said that Walter Hill told him to watch Greta Garbo's performance in Nanotchka. To achieve the super straight line deliveries. And because it's also a film about a no-nonsense Russian on a mission in the decadent West and the possibility that there will be capitalist temptation.
2: I'm looking for
1: Michael Simonovich Ironov.
0: I am Michael Simonovich Ironov.
1: I'm Nina Ivanovna Yakushova, envoy extraordinary, acting on the direct orders of Comrade Commissar Rosin.
2: Comrade Bojanov? Comrade? Comrade Kopalsky. Comrade. What a charming idea for Moscow to surprise us with a lady, comrade. If he had known, we would have greeted you with flowers.
1: <laughs> Don't make an issue of my womanhood. We're
2: here for work, all of us. Let's not waste any time. Shall we go? Porter. Here, please. What do you want?
0: May I have you bags, madame? Why? He's a
1: porter. He wants to carry them. Why? Why should you carry other people's bags? Well, that's
2: my business, madame. That's no business. That's social injustice. That depends on the tip. Allow me, on. No, no, thank you. How are things in Moscow? Very good. The last mass trials were a great success. There are going to be fewer but better Russians.
0: But you don't expect, like, a Greta Garbo movie to be the, <laughs> the, to be the inspiration for a performance of Arnold's.
1: <laughs> Let me go back to one of the things that you read from Walter Hill right there, because I think it gets... Um, at why I think this is such an amazing time capsule of exactly when the movie came out. I mean You get the sense that this movie was made through the prism of Walter Hill and everybody else involved with it imagining that the Soviet Union would be around for a much longer period of time. Like they were imagining we were getting to a stage of geopolitics where okay, we might not like what they do but it's becoming a much more defanged version, especially in the Gorbachev era of what it used to be before and a a less atrocious model of Soviet communism. It's sort of this movie that's frozen in this moment where not just a lot of overpaid people in Hollywood, but a lot of um, overhyped people in what is supposed to be the world's biggest, baddest, most notorious intelligence apparatus in America completely missed that the Soviet Union was not long for this world. And if you watch Red Heat today, you clearly see that that's where Walter Hill and the rest of the crew are coming from.
0: Yeah, they presumed when they made Red Heat that we're always going to be dealing with the Soviets and that maybe we can have an uneasy peace between our two nations. But in fact, um, within a year and a half of this movie being made, the USSR disintegrated.
1: Right. It would be like making a movie at some point in the 90s about um, uh, having like an apartheid South Africa cop who comes to New York City (laughs) or Chicago and, and... It's like, oh, you you might dislike that I'm a part of the South African regime, but I'm like, you know, I'm a nicer guy, and I don't think all people with black skin, like, uh, spread AIDS to you by blinking at you or something like that. It's like, oh, yeah, 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 a more liberalized version of of this government. Great.
0: (laughs) You know, you mentioning South Africa reminds me that in 1989, the bad guys in Lethal Weapon 2 were South Africans, were Afrikaans. Oh no! That that is an all time classic in the genre of
1: uh, left wing Hollywood action movies, which yeah. is obviously hilarious because it stars Mel Gibson. But putting that aside for a second, um,
0: yeah. But at least that movie had sort of political context because it was critical of the apartheid regime, and it was made actually while they were also on their last legs.
1: Yes, exactly. It, it In that way, it holds up way better than Red Heat does, uh, by which I mean is it feels less dated than Red yeah. Heat does. And don't get me wrong, I love Red Heat, but it's like I said, it's a time capsule.
0: You know, one thing that I've noticed in the sort of the contemporary situation that's going on with Putin and Russia, there's still a sort of feeling of a Soviet hangover to me in terms of the Russian autocratic leadership. Like, it's not a communist uh, country anymore, per se. But I presume if I were to go on a trip to Moscow, I would see the hammer and sickle everywhere. And I've watched some uh, coverage of, just to sort of torture myself, I looked at some RT coverage, and they kept Uh. referring to the Red Army, and they kept sometimes referred to themselves as Soviets. You know, it's there's something kind of incoherent about the way that Russia sort of presents itself as a different country when in so many ways, there's just sort of a a rebranded version of the same, you know, system.
1: Well, they're like us. They like winners. They like winners. That's why they like Red Army lore and iconography because who else gets to say we were really the determining factor that crushed the Nazi regime and won World War II for the Allies. Um... It's the same thing you see where someone who isn't an absolute complete die-in-the-wall neo-confederate in the United States can still, even though they're pledging allegiance to the flag, still say something nice and admiring about Robert E. Lee or other uh, notorious, famous or infamous, I should say, uh, southern uh, generals. It's because they, uh, uh, th- th- there is something in the American soul that likes the mythology, if not the actual truth, of the tough guy or the supposed tough guy. And you, there's no reason why that shouldn't be transposed to uh, a Russian audience or an audience of any other nationality. And what we're talking about now actually goes to why the movie Red Heat is so admiring, even though... It does so in a tongue-in-cheek way of Soviet-style policing.
0: (laughs) Almost all of the movie and the parts that take place in Moscow were filmed in Budapest. Yes, yes, that is true. I want to take a minute or two to to praise uh, Mario Kassar and Andrew Vajna, who were the guys who ran Karolko Pictures, the mark of quality. They were like the upscale canon. They were these two producers who made... Very big, uh, schlocky movies. They had much more money to play with than Golan and Globus. What was their big downfall? Because I've read, like, many, many years ago, long
1: read, uh, journalistic pieces about that company and its rise and its excesses and its dramatic downfall. Wasn't was there like one movie that completely destroyed them?
0: There was. Their fatal mistake as a company. They were, they produced. The uh, Terminator 2 they produced Basic Instinct they produced Total Recall they had um, lots of big hits and they did Red Heat and Extreme Prejudice two films by Walter Hill their big fuck up was that they had the option of making an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie about the Crusades directed by Paul Verhoeven And instead, they decided to make Cutthroat Island, Mm -hmm. the Rennie Harlan movie, which originally was to star Michael Douglas, but then he dropped out and got replaced by Matthew Modine. And that turned out to be a fatal error, because, like, you would think a Schwarzenegger Verhoeven movie about the Crusades would be a no-brainer, but they decided instead to make a pirate movie for an astronomical amount of money that was a huge bomb and pretty much finished off Carolco pictures.
1: You know, the movie quiz show where they, uh, set the guy up to, uh, fail on national television with a very easy question with a very easy answer. And Mm -hmm. he, he says, you can't do that to me. It's like, that's so easy. Any, any idiot or kid would get that. And the, uh, The other guy says to him, it's like, yeah, such a smart winner like you, like, just absolutely eating shit on national TV for uh, such an easy question. Don't you understand the great entertainment value and drama in that? That is exactly the concept of what you just described with this movie company, where it's like the easiest answer in the world of whether to pick door A or door B. The answer is clearly door A. Because door B, water is leaking out of it, and you can hear the stings of the electric eels on the other end of it. But for some fucking reason,
0: you choose door B. I mean, you deserve to go out of business if that's your business model. <laughs> you I mean, know? I, yeah, but um, if I ran a studio, my business model would be
1: one s- almost solely and entirely based on giving Paul Verhoeven whatever he fucking wanted in the 1980s and 90s. So there you go.
0: Well, just the fact that like they the track record they had with Total Recall and then Paul Verhoeven with Basic Instinct, it's like, what were they thinking? What were they thinking? Yeah. I guess they wanted to save some money, but then they wound up spending even more money than the Verhoeven movie would have cost on Cutthroat Island. Just, I, I feel sicker and dirtier having learned <laughs> what you just told me. But anyway, Andrew Vajna was... Um, hungarian so he had connections for them to film in budapest the other uh interesting thing about red heat in terms of glasnost and things is that this was the first american studio movie to be allowed to film in red square this had never happened before i i don't and
1: i i i mean i i I don't know exactly how this worked at the time, but what would they ever have to run the script by the like the Soviet Ministry of Culture or something like that?
0: I that I don't know. Okay, I mean... well if if they
1: had to do something like that, I would have loved to be a fly on the wall and watching these Soviet uh, apparatchiks or um, uh, senior officials just going line by line through the script for Red Heat and just looking at themselves and being like, did the Americans just generate? Our own propaganda for us? (laughs) Of course we'll let them shoot in red square. Why wouldn't we?
0: In the opening credits, they have um, Russian-style font. So all the names, like Arnold Schwarzenegger's name, all the R's in his name are backwards. You know, I gotta wonder,
1: (laughs) what, what did Arnold think at the time about making this kind of pro cop slash pro soviet union propaganda at this stage in his career he devoted a chunk of his 2004 republican convention speech where he was going there to talk about why america should re elect george w bush um he devoted a good chunk of that address to talking about how the reason he became a republican as as a kid was because it reminded him less of the Soviet Union than 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 what the Democratic candidates were saying on live TV. So, what like what is the arc there? What I, I mean, I, I suppose there's nothing more American and anti-Soviet than trying to make a buck, which was what I'm sure he was doing <laughs> with this movie. But at the same time, you, you got to wonder what what, what 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 was the what was his game there? <laughs> Police Captain Ivan Danko came from behind the Iron Curtain.
2: Danko, you're welcome. <laughs> Hunting down his country's deadliest criminal.
0: What did he do? He take a leak on the Kremlin wall or something?
2: I need cooperation. Sure, whatever you say, me. Now, he's about to team up. What do say? he say? He said, go and kiss your mother's behind with the most unpredictable cop, and you, know, honey, not dead. Thank you. On the streets of Chicago, you look like Marvin Hagler to me. I lost money on Hagler.
1: I guess we should actually start telling uh, the uninitiated of your listeners what the fuck this movie is actually about, as opposed to just continuing to say over and over again that it's some <laughs> of the best pro-Soviet propaganda <laughs> that Hollywood had ever produced uh, following the end of the Second World War.
0: First of all, I just want to say that there's a really good cast in this movie besides Arnold and Jim Belushi, who was billed as James Belushi at this point. We also have Peter Boyle. We have the young Larry Fishburne when he was still Larry. We had Gina Gershon. We had Pruitt Taylor Vince. And one scene with the great Brian James, the uh, cult actor who was in Blade Runner. First, the movie starts in Moscow. And it starts in a scene where they get your attention very quickly. Uh, Arnold shows up at some spa. And there's all these nude (laughs) men and women. And we also see at this, uh, I guess it's in a banya or something. But we see uh, the main villain who's a Georgian. But we're not talking about the state of Georgia. We're talking about the Republic of Georgia which was still part of the Soviet Union, played by Edo Ross, who's an American actor. Edo Ross made an impression on me as one of the humans that gets hijacked in the great sci-fi action movie, The Hidden. And he's the main villain in this movie. Victor Rostavili, Rasta, but they keep calling him Victor Rostov. I know, it's really funny. At the beginning of the movie, Arnold confronts him, and there's a very funny scene where he grabs this assailant in the bar and pulls his leg off. And at first, you think that he actually pulled his actual leg off?
1: (laughs) Well, when I saw that scene, my mind was, okay, he's about to break his leg with, like, the flick of a wrist just to show how badass he is. But no, no, it's, it's a fake leg. It was like an awesome plot twist right off the bat. What more could you ask from your 1980s actioner?
0: But when I saw it in the theater, we all like gasped because it actually looked like Arnold pulled the guy's leg off <laughs> to start the movie. But it was a, a wooden leg and it was hollow. And inside the, the wooden leg was a bag of cocaine. And then uh, Arnold says, "Cocainum." Is
1: that Russian for
0: cocaine, or is that uh, any other language for cocaine? I guess it's Russian. Um, and we'll get. I'm going to tell you more about this soon. But that became a meme in uh, social media in Russia. The the shot of Arnold pulling the coke out of the leg and saying "cocainum" became a popular internet meme over there.
1: As it should. It should be a popular <laughs> internet meme everywhere.
0: So. Then there's a a fight that spills out of the spa and and it turns into Arnold and this other meaty uh, Russian guy beating the shit out of each other in the snow. Uh, They're either nude or wearing towels. And... And the fists are pounding into each other's faces. And it's very, very funny. So, I mean, this movie, I'm on board with this movie almost immediately. Because you got nudity, you got super violence, and you've got uh, Arnold in the nude. And it's directed in a way that only Walter Hill could do. <laughs> yeah. Super macho. Then we get the opening credits. And there's a wonderful moment in the opening credits where the director's name credit comes up over a statue of Karl Marx
2: (laughs) (laughs) they really
1: should have done it as like Lenin yeah or like someone who actually has the uh, stink on them of being contemporaneously there when the Soviet Union actually started Becoming the atrocity <laughs> that yeah. it was. They really should have just gone for it. Like, ju- just just a gigantic bust of Vladimir Lenin and or Stalin.
0: like. <laughs> so then there's a scene where we meet Arnold and his partner, another Russian cop. And the Russian cop says something that I wanted to ask you about. Where they're, he says, they're talking about the, uh, the growing drug problem in Moscow. They're speaking in Russian with subtitles, but he says, 10 years ago, no drugs. Now we have a problem. Another 10 years, it'll be like Harlem.
1: <laughs> <laughs> See, the, the amazing thing about the politics of this movie is, and I think you and I have talked about this before, it is pro-Soviet, even if in a tongue-in-cheek and self-aware way, but it is a thousand percent not left-wing because the vision they give of the drug war, of American and Russian policing and of, of how to deal with your average criminal, whether petty or higher profile, is a thousand percent what you would have happen if you made a movie starring Clint Eastwood playing Dirty Harry, which was, of course, derided when it came out by its critics as right-wing fascist propaganda.
0: Yeah, this is i mean the soviet union was on its last legs but there is barely any actual leftist content in this movie
1: There's it's a almost There's well a
0: just a little yeah we'll talk about that one scene but but in this film um there's no actual like socialism in this movie. Correct is one way that I would Correct. put it. it Even it was- though it's trying to ride on the whole idea of the Russian cop and the American cop, but we're gonna have to meet each other halfway. But that's a false premise because there's they're, they're both cops. They they're not. It's not like a peaceful version versus a violent version. It's like the the one that supposedly semi plays by the rules versus the other one who doesn't understand why you have rules. Correct.
1: It's not a meeting of the minds of a Soviet economist and like Milton Friedman or something (laughs) like this. These are two people who um, broadly agree on the sort of ends justifies the means. I'm a kind of like rogue, badass cop method of getting things done. However, the major difference is the American cop has some rough semblance of respecting due process, and 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 the rights of of suspected criminals or de- detainees, um, like that is, uh, and we can talk about this an hour or a little bit later, uh, if you if you want, but that is the t- source of a lot of the comedic tension in the movie that Jim Belushi keeps telling him, it's like, "Wait, do not understand the rights of criminals or alleged criminals. What are you doing here?" Whereas as, as Arnold hilariously says, as his character in the movie, the Soviet model is more economical in terms of <laughs> instead of questioning a a, a, uh, informant or a suspect or a person of interest, you just
0: physically torture them until they tell you what you want. (laughs) (laughs) So before the movie heads into the United States, there's a sequence where um, the bad guy, Victor, uh, is trying to escape from Arnold, because he escaped the first time, and, he, and so Arnold and his partner are going after him, and Arnold's partner gets killed, so the bad guy escapes and he winds up in Chicago
1: because of course yes. where, where <laughs> else would a international uh, Georgian drug lord go <laughs> obviously uh, the major the windy the windy city why not?
0: The bad guy Victor seems to be in league with this gang of black drug dealers in Chicago who are mostly of shaved heads, and they keep referring to them as the clean heads. So, yeah, I mean,
1: this this is another part of the movie that I've always loved, where they have the Georgian drug lord pursued by the Soviet cop uh, bolting across the Atlantic to team up with black skinheads in Chicago. Just because. Just why not?
0: But they're not like a black punk gang. They're just a bunch of uh, drug dealers, but they're all bald. And they kept referring to them as the clean heads, but they would say it in this, it felt like a racial epithet substitute to me. I almost got killed by a couple of clean heads. It it sounded to me like they were substituting a word.
1: Right, exactly. Again, it goes (laughs) towards the actual reactionary nature of the movie, despite being a fucking pro-Soviet cop (laughs) movie.
0: Anyway, so we're introduced to Jim Belushi, who uh, is pretty piggish as a cop. Like, he keeps uh, checking out women. The the very first time we see Jim Belushi, he's, like, praising this woman's breasts on the street corner while while he's with his partner. And, like, any woman who goes by, he says, hey, honey, you know, and then she says, get lost, you know he's always uh, serving up jokes in the movie. And I have to say, even though I didn't mind Jim Belushi's presence in this movie, I never found him particularly funny.
1: (laughs) He's just there to be Jim Belushi. That is it. That is it. Um, I mean, as I think we were flicking at earlier in this episode, the comedic gold is all done by Arnold, who is... Like by any reasonable metric, it's supposed to be the straight man character, sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But but yet the, the the all the amazing comic timing and all of the truly juiciest funniest bits all come from this super stoic Soviet police officer.
0: So Jim Belushi does a bust, and I guess that's how. Uh, they don't re- there's a little fuzzy part of the movie that I don't quite understand where v- Victor escapes from the Chicago cops also doing a bust. and then in the next scene, they s- we're back in Moscow and we see somebody reading uh, something off a, a teletype uh, a telegraph machine that says that Victor's been arrested in Chicago. They don't actually show how he got caught though.
1: Yeah, it's just a moment in the movie where they're like, uh, "And Poochie died on the way yeah, back to his home planet." It was, planet like, it was like
0: they they cut a scene out or something, right? And, uh, and then everybody's like,
1: "Okay, whatever, you American hogs, you movie-going audiences,
0: you'll buy anything. Just go with it. Just just trust us." He got he got arrested. You don't need to see that. And it's like, but but why? And why isn't that the end of the movie? It doesn't matter. Just just fucking go with it. We just have to have an excuse for Arnold to go to the States. So then Arnold is uh, sent by his superiors in the KGB to go and get this guy and bring him back to Moscow. Again, it's like the man from U.N.C.L.E., except for (laughs) cops who like
1: smashing perpetrators' heads against the side of the door of the car.
0: (laughs) So Arnold shows up in at O'Hare Airport, and he's all decked out in his full KGB uniform, and um, Belushi doesn't like him right off the bat. Uh, This is one of those movies where they start to like each other, and they warm up, and they're friends by the end. But for the longest time, Belushi seems to resent this assignment that he's been given. Also, I know it's an action movie, made by Walter Hill, starring Arnold
1: Schwarzenegger, But if we are to overanalyze it too much and try to ground it in some degree of 1980s reality, would that have even been allowed in (laughs) Ronald Reagan's America? Or even even Jimmy Carter's America? Or Gerald Ford's America? Do they just allow Soviet cops to just run around the streets of major American cities because we're waging the war
0: on drugs together? Was that a thing? (laughs) I know. It's like... Uh, and then, uh, well, I guess the only thing is that Arnold doesn't have a gun.
1: Which which comes up a lot in the movie. And quite frankly, for most of it, he doesn't really need one. He's no. a force of nature on
0: his own. So Arnold arrives in Chicago, and they want to put him up in a nice hotel. But Arnold wants to stay at the flea pit hotel that Victor was staying at. Yeah. The, what is it called? The Hotel Garvin Or something. And and Arnold is talking in a Russian English accent. But this is another incredible uh, bit of coincidence why we wanted to do a show about Red Heat is that there's a scene where Arnold is uh, in the car with Jim Belushi, and Jim Belushi says, Oh, you speak very good English. Where'd you learn to speak English? And he says, In the army. I was stationed in Kiev. (laughs) <laughs> and belushi's like oh chicken kiev my sister had that at her wedding which and it's like they're literally talking about kiev in this movie this is incredible
1: which is any uh uh filthy american or uh western propagandist will tell you is supposed to be pronounced kiev not yes. Ki- kiev But because of movies like this, I grew up with Kiev, so I still think that's how it's pronounced, which I guess if you're a Soviet police officer is exactly how you would pronounce it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, he says Kiev. Do you remember there was a tweet uh, at the beginning of all of this stuff that's going on in Ukraine where they were like, look for the signs of Russian disinformation campaigns. Look for anybody who uses the word Kiev instead of kiev And it's like, uh, I don't know if that's an exact uh, indicator of (laughs) Russian disinformation. No, because, well, I know you're in Canada right now, but talking about uh, where I am, the United States,
1: people are fucking dumb here. And I count myself in that category. We still think it's Kiev. And I'm sorry, Kiev sounds cooler. In a vacuum, I know. I call it Kiev. I call it Kiev. All my friends call it Kiev. But Kiev, it just sounds cooler. I'm sorry. I don't know why. It just
0: does. When I was a kid, uh, we learned all about um, Peking. Right? And we all had to learn how to say Beijing.
1: But how else would you say Beijing?
0: Beijing. Well, this is the age difference between you and me. When I was a kid, we always talked about Peking. But then in the 80s, we all had to learn that the city is actually called Beijing. Oh, that's why Peking Duck and all those Chinese restaurants say Peking on them. I'm Thai. This is why I don't know these things. <laughs> but like, when you know, so like, to me, somebody saying Kiev is just uh, an indicator of how old they are more than a Russian disinformation campaign. But anyway, so Arnold in this movie refers to it as Kiev, but it's so funny that he uh, that that Kiev gets mentioned a few times in this film.
1: Yeah, yeah. Everybody should be watching this movie right now, um, <laughs> along with doom scrolling about the uh, atrocities in Ukraine at the moment. It's very, it's very instructive about how we got to where we are right now.
0: Um, do, remember, do you remember when the, uh, after the 9-11 attacks, people were watching that movie called The Siege with Denzel Washington, because they were trying to understand the, you know, the geopolitics? It was co-written
1: By the same guy who wrote The Looming Tower, which is considered one of the definitive uh, uh, nonfiction books on how we got to 9-11. Oh, Uh, that that I didn't know. Lawrence Wright. Lawrence Wright. And uh, I don't know how you feel about The Siege, but I still... It came out, I think, in 1998, and it calls every single shot really jarringly accurately about what would happen in terms of domestic political debate with regards to the war on terror during the Bush years, in a way that reminds me a lot of how uh, Starship Troopers by Paul Verhoeven just got everything right about where America was headed and what would have happened, what was soon to happen with the Iraq War, the global war on terror, the uh, invasion of Afghanistan. But of course, both movies were eerily prophetic because they both came out in the
0: 1990s. But Red Heat won't exactly explain this current situation to anybody.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. But it, it, it's, it's very, um, in its own way, it's a good piece of documentation of how we got to
0: where we are today. So as uh, Arnold and Jim Belushi are beginning to, you know, do this investigation together, uh, we start seeing uh, differences between them in terms of their police tactics, for instance, yes, we mentioned earlier that you know they they have a suspect, and J- Jim Belushi's trying to get the information out of him. But then Arnold starts actually like t- torturing the guy, like, and then more, he
1: spills, Like, breaking his fingers behind his back <laughs> or something. And um, Jim Belushi lecturing on him on like, hey, haven't you ever learned how to how to do this by the book? Or something like that. That's that's not exactly a direct quote. And then as I was mentioning earlier, Arnold, after he gets the information that he needs, as he's walking out of the interrogation chamber, just looks at Jim Belushi and says, Soviet method is more economical
0: <laughs> and just
1: moves on. It's like and that is not the only line of this movie where it is heaping praise upon the the earthiness of the quote-unquote Soviet model, <laughs> which, again, is indistinguishable from what uh, the right-wing, badass, dirty, hairy would do. It's the yeah. exact same thing. It, what does it matter what the governing ideology
0: of the state is if the cop is just being a cop? This was the most fucked-up exchange for me in terms of dialogue. Uh, Schwarzenegger's driving the car, and he says, I have car under control. And... Art Ridzik, pl- the cop played by Belushi, says, Yeah, I'm sure they taught you all about cars and the price of insurance at your famous Russian school in Kiev. In socialist countries, insurance not necessary. State pays for everything. Belushi says, Well, tell me something, Captain. If you've got such a fucking paradise over there, how come you're up the same creek as we are with heroin and cocaine? Schwarzenegger says, Chinese find a way. Right after revolution, they round up all drug dealers, all drug addicts, take them to public square and shoot them in back of head. Oh, yeah. See, it's
1: absolutely not a left-wing movie. It is a uh, proto-Duterte movie (laughs) who doesn't really have an ideology that you can actually pin down on a left-right spectrum as you or I understand it.
0: So after he says, uh, well, Chinese, just shoot them in back of head, Belushi says, ah, that'll never work here. Fucking politicians wouldn't go for it. Correct. <laughs> Correct. I, I have no doubt. I know it's
1: supposed to be funny. <laughs> I have... It, it is funny. and And I have no doubt that someone like George H.W. Bush would have wanted to do something like that if he could have gotten away with it but alas he didn't have that sort of political reality because of you know the Bill of Rights and shit like that but no it's amazing that um, that the conversation in they're in a car in that scene if I recall correctly uh, yeah while they're just cruising down the street, the resolution of that is oh yeah we just can't get away with that here because you know politics. <laughs> <laughs> not because of the hu- humanity or human rights, or just that that is maybe not the best long-term way to ensure safety and peace and prosperity in your country. But no, it's just that, yeah, sorry, we we can't get away with the shit that, they, that the Maoist totalitarians were able to get away with when they were trying to eradicate opium or use or whatever in some sort of Chinese Hamlet.
0: You know, the other thing that just occurred to me now while we're talking is that you know, the year after Red Heat was the Tiananmen Square Massacre.
1: This, this movie rolls.
0: This movie fucking rolls. Chinese have right idea. Drive tank into crowd. You know, it's like...
1: But no, it's... It's actually, look, like, if you had to nail down the political ideology of this movie, how would you describe it to, like, a complete stranger, or if not stranger, just someone who has not seen this movie?
0: Well, I would say that it is um, pro-cop and and anti-rules, you know? It's like he gets results, kind of, uh, you know, like th- sort of a McBain kind of cop from from The Simpsons. McBain pain to base under attack by commie Nazis. Now, here's two other things that I wanted to talk about about this movie. So, um, Gina Gershon is in it, and I always love seeing her. And she has a fairly thankless role <laughs> in this movie. She's uh, she's Victor's American wife, who, of course, he's uh, tricked into marrying him so that he could be in the United States. But there's one little fun fact. She's a fitness instructor. And there's music that's playing while she's uh, teaching a class, which is actually the first time that house music was used in a mainstream movie, which was a music genre born in Chicago.
1: (sighs) That's another thing that pisses me off about why this movie is ranked at sort of the more bottom tier of Schwarzenegger and or Walter Hill movies, that everything you're describing in terms of these fun facts of this movie is underscoring just how innovative and just, like, first it was in so many things.
0: Yeah. Chicago uh, was one of the birthplaces of House and was relatively unknown outside Chicago, so it's pretty amazing opportunity for uh, local house musicians to get into an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie to begin the ball rolling on the popularity of house music. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wouldn't say that this movie made house music popular. I would, but it's fascinating. <laughs> well, maybe it maybe it was the gateway drug for you. <laughs> <laughs> the track is called "Jack and National Anthem." Look it up on YouTube. (laughs) But then there's a sleazy line after uh, Belushi is interrogating Gina Gershon. She leaves the room and then Belushi says, I'm going to bust that bitch so hard she bounces.
1: And this is supposed to be the humane cop. (laughs) Which which also, again, at least for me, goes to a perhaps unintentionally self-aware humor in the movie. Because... The fact that they made the more humane of the two cops, the white Chicago police officer in the 1980s who can't stop talking about how much he hates the black gangsters. The fact that they made him the one who has the softer touch. At some point, they had to do something that sort of um, uh, highlighted exactly what's going on with him there. And I think the thing about beating the shit out of Gino Gerson just because he feels <laughs> like it kind of gets at that.
0: Yeah. And that's a perfect segue to the other scene that I wanted to talk about with you, which is the scene where Arnold goes to prison to talk to the leader of the clean heads. Who's a black revolutionary leader named Abdul Elijah. <laughs> and he, uh, what I think is very interesting about this scene is that he wants to talk to Arnold and I wonder, this is as close as this movie gets to any kind of Marxism or revolutionary theory, like that the black revolutionary in jail would sooner talk to a Soviet cop than to an American cop.
1: No, no, absolutely. I, I Like I said, this movie is operating on a ton of admirable levels, and that's one of them.
0: <laughs> but I wanted to read you the speech that Abdul Elijah says to Arnold. Uh, and also Arnold is offended that this black, uh, revolutionary has no respect for the police. He says that, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, he's one, he wants to talk to Arnold because he's not an American cop, which is, you know, accidental social commentary, but Abdul says, you want to know what my crime is? My crime was being born. I'm 38 years old and I've been locked up 26 of those. I educated myself in here, and I've come to understand that this country was built on exploiting the black man. Of course, I don't hear anything about brothers in your country, but your country exploits its own people just the same. So I guess that makes me the only Marxist around here, right, comrade? Accurate. Zero <laughs> Pinocchios. The, the actual hero of the movie is this yeah. guy. <laughs> no. Uh, although he's not really a hero, because then the next thing he says is, this ain't no drug deal. This is politics, baby. This is economics. This is spiritual. I plan to sell drugs to every white man in the world and his sister. Like I said, hero of the
1: movie. <laughs> I mean, when I saw that, I really did think that it was Walter Hill's way of slyly slipping into the movie commentary about how. Um, uh, there are dual stories of exploitations going on in the, in the capitalist American system and also uh, the uh, Soviet communist system. And where else are you going to do it in the movie? Like th- there's just no other venue for it in this movie. But he wants to get that jab in there, and um, I, I I I don't want to say it was effective because it's kind of like a hit and run. But, but I enjoyed it. I thought it, was f- I thought it was fun.
0: Like, they don't have a virtuous Marxist in this movie. They have a guy who's just as cynical as everyone else.
1: Well, I guess you could call the Soviet cop character a Marxist in that scenario, right? Um,
0: he's... Well, he's an anti-capitalist anyway.
1: Yeah, right, right, right. And the movie, I'm not sure if they want you to think of him as virtuous, but they certainly want you to root for him. And, and, and... Uh, be be happy and walk out of the cinema with a smile on your face with the fact that he's returned to the Soviet Union to keep doing what he does best and keep loving Soviet Russia.
0: <laughs> well, there was one sort of uh, laugh line in the movie that uh, I guess counts as some semi-social commentary. When Arnold checks into the Flea Pit Hotel, he turns on the TV and there's porn playing on TV and then the only thing Arnold has to say about that is he just looks at it and he says, capitalism.
1: I forgot about that scene. I, that, what, it's coming back to me now. That when I first saw that in high school with my high school buddy, we were like dying laughing at that moment. That was like a, please rewind that. Please play that again. Snippet of the movie as was. And this, we actually did rewind to play it again because we were laughing so hard the first time uh the scene when arnold is alone in the car and this is shortly after he has just learned what miranda rights are in america
0: they don't so confused that you have they have rights right like (laughs) the
1: prisoner the the criminal uh so some asshole just approaches him while he's sitting alone without Jim Belushi in a car like staking something out or something like that and starts bothering him so super stone faced Arnold as Soviet cop just looks at the guy and says do you know Miranda as in Miranda rights and then this idiot American says something to the effect of like I have no idea who that bitch is, who you're talking about. And then Oral just punches him through <laughs> the, through the fucking window and just knocks him out cold on the sidewalk.
0: And then Belushi shows up with, because uh, Belushi went to go get them some hamburgers and drinks. Like he comes back with the, the, the snacks and sees the guy out cold on the sidewalk in front of the car. Another great line of... Uh, showing the sort of Soviet style of policing is that Arnold's very confused at the whole idea of uh, a suspect being allowed to talk to their lawyer and and he says in Soviet Union only after two days can scumbag talk to lawyer
1: <laughs> again the movie portrays this as a positive <laughs>
0: yeah
1: As oh would it be great if we could do that in Chicago also you know uh ha ha ha, the idea of uh uh Chicago police ever doing anything we especially no. when it comes to detaining suspects, but putting that aside for a moment. Uh, it's like <laughs> yes, it's it's played up for laughs, but at the same time the movie is saying to a certain degree that oh This model of alleged badassery is preferable, including indefinitely detaining a suspect without proper counsel.
0: Having a cop say that in Soviet Union we can hold you without charges for days, um, you know, there are people in the audience who would say, yeah, that's actually a good idea. I can't believe I agree with the Russians. Right, Exactly. (laughs) In my research when I was doing this show, I found out a very delightful little fun fact about how this movie has been received in Russia. Mm. That scene earlier in the movie where Arnold and his partner are talking about the threat of drugs in the Soviet Union, apparently that scene and a few other scenes in this movie are the subject of ridicule in post-Soviet countries, partly because they consider the actor's Russian accents to be really bad. But also, like, when they're speaking in Russian, Russian audiences find that very funny. It doesn't sound like Russian to a Russian ear.
1: Well, it's kind of, it, that we were uh, talking about The Simpsons a little bit ago, and it reminds me of that famous Simpsons episode where Bart it goes on trial or something like that in Australia, where if uh, one of the criticisms it had from Australian audiences is that, The Australian characters, some of them at least, don't sound Australian. They sound South
0: African. (laughs) In Russian, there's an idiom, cranberry, which refers to foreign writers or filmmakers trading in stereotypes to make absurd depictions of Russian culture. So this movie has almost all of them. At one point, Peter Boyle, who plays the Chicago uh, chief, asks Arnold how people relieve stress in Russia. And he just says, vodka, vodka. But they find it funny that this is the Western idea of what Russia is like. So it plays on a totally different level for the, for the Russian people.
1: Well, that in a sort of mirror image way is what I've always appreciated about the movie. That it, it, it is stereotyping, um, among other things, not just uh, Russian policing... But American policing, in a way where it feels like it's really self-aware about what it's doing. It's working on multiple different levels that you can view it as satire or parody. Um, or you could just, you, but regardless of how satirical you think the movie is, you can clearly see that it is laughing at itself. It is not meant to be taken super seriously.
0: Yeah like you could but, like they're, but they're just like I don't think a Russian with... audience would be of, offended by anything that happens in this movie. No, no, but it it, it just so happens that
1: all of this uh, uh joviality is being perpetrated against the very clear and distinct backdrop of police brutality.
0: <laughs> the other uh, appeal that Red Heat has for modern Russian audiences is the nostalgia factor of the Soviet Union setting. Like it's funny for young audiences to see this American movie about the KGB. And to have Arnold speaking in a bad Russian accent dressed up as a KGB cop.
1: It's my favorite Russian accent that I've ever heard in any movie outside of Harrison Ford in K 19.
0: Fighter Missile 3.
1: Another movie that, in a weird way, is uh, uh, sort of toasting the um uh uh the character and the integrity of the Soviet well, obviously not police forces, but in that case, Soviet military um, but th- that movie came out like what like two thousand and three, so it was kind of it was definitely okay to do it
0: at that point that's like that's like enemy at the gates style like stuff. Just back to the Red Square details, the other fun fact about the fact that they got to film in Moscow was that they didn't exactly have the full rights to stage a scene at Red Square. Awesome. So they brought Arnold Schwarzenegger to Moscow. They dressed him up as Danko in his KGB uniform, and then they filmed him on Red Square doing a salute, which you see at the end of the movie, as if they were uh, filming as tourists. Like, they just snuck in and filmed Arnold standing there and then leaving. And that was the only thing they were allowed to do with a movie star on this, on in Moscow.
1: That's another reason why this movie is an all-time great, because it has that <laughs> uh, uh, unintentionally hilarious element of guerrilla filmmaking. Yeah. Like, um, it would be like if William Freakin made The French Connection, but it was just a shot of a car failing to start no matter how many times you turned the key... It's like, but you didn't have a permit to be on that road. It's like, cool.
0: (laughs) That was how Larry Cohen used to do stuff. Like when he made um, God Told Me To and Black Caesar, they didn't have the permits, but that didn't stop them from doing a car chase or a a foot chase through a parade. They just did it. They They didn't have permits, though.
1: I mean, I'm assuming the people who made Medium Cool with them running around during the... 1968 Chicago convention rides, they probably didn't have permits either, right? No. Again, no. great movie. Just fewer, more movies need fewer permits. That's it.
0: <laughs> in fact, if you watch that scene, you'll notice, because the end credits run over like Arnold leaves the, uh-huh. leaves the shot, and then the credits roll, and you can see Russian cops standing around in Red Square wondering what these guys are doing. They don't, they don't uh, engage the camera crew, but you can see that they're being observed while they're there.
1: I, I'm going to go check that out again because I remember the way the credits scroll from you the first time I watched it all those years ago, but I, I did not know to look out for that, obviously. So
0: yeah. Yeah. Watch carefully. You'll see that there are cops standing around in the square near them who are keeping their eye on them, but they didn't interfere. I guess maybe they didn't even realize that Arnold was there. And you know, the other little irony of, of this movie and it sort of echoes to history is that, um, Yvonne, Danko, the character that Arnold plays, this Moscow militia captain in the KGB, was serving at the same time as Vladimir Putin. Before he became a politician, he was stationed with the KGB in um, East Germany.
1: Like, I, I wouldn't be the first person to point out that if Ronald Reagan were reanimated and he found out that right now uh, the regime in Russia is a right wing authoritarian uh, one. Um, that has completely shedded the uh, uh, the vestiges of Marxism, he would be smiling and think that, ah, this is part of my legacy. So that's another reason why it's so weird. I mean, it's also weird because they're, they're dumb as shit, so obviously it's going to be weird. But when you hear right-wing politicians or certain media figures in the United States referring to what's going on right now in terms of Russian aggression as it's a communist society or this is commie aggression. It's like, what motherfucker, what decade are you living in? <laughs> how, how do you not see that if you are an adherent to Reaganism, which I guess they still are, but they're more adherents to Trumpism at this point, how do you not look at the Putin regime and realize that you guys won? You won in the 1980s and the early 90s, and this is the consequence of that. You, you, you What, like, Russia is not going to look like Uh, uh, like Vermont, just because you won the Cold War.
0: Uh, I hadn't seen Red Heat since the 80s, but the first thing that I noticed while I was watching this movie was that all the music that I was hearing was the soundtrack for John Woo's The Killer, I kept hearing all these music cues where I was like, wait a minute, this is the music from, where have I heard this before? Wait a minute, this is from The Killer.
1: A John Woo movie that I would say with no exaggeration is the single greatest action
0: movie ever made anyway, of all time. But I presumed that the incredible music in The Killer was an original score, but it was just lifted outright from the soundtrack of Red Heat.
1: Good. (laughs) Good. <laughs> Fantastic. I could imagine I I can't imagine a better movie to ape a soundtrack from. You're making me like Walter Hill even more right now. <laughs>
0: There's no credit on the soundtrack of The Killer for James Horner, but this was his soundtrack, and I wonder now whether or not Wu even had the rights <laughs> to use this music. That maybe the movie just became so big that um, they just didn't bother. I don't know. John, Woo. you gotta love the Hong Kong film industry in the '80s.
1: Oh God, it was so good, Jesus. The the you know the the Hong Kong action movie scene of which. Zhang uh, Woo and his Haiti rose out of, is the single greatest argument for multiculturalism. Or, or if not multiculturalism, like the fact that no one country gets it right. You have to have a merger of different ideas and ideals. Because mm-hmm. Hong Kong, obviously, at the time, was... Chinese, but it didn't belong to China. And uh, I know there's the crackdowns now, but for a long time, even when it returned to Chinese hands, it was still, you know, kind of its own system and its own uh, mini country within a country. And the sort of, for lack of a better term, whatever Western influence or Western economic influence was given to that part of China, Fused with their artistic sensibilities and the the um, the amazing verve and vision that comes out of someone like Jean Wu and his contemporaries, uh, where else in the world could you have gotten that? You would not have gotten that in a uh, in in Hollywood, in a uh, or anywhere else in the quote unquote free
0: world. Um, it had to come out of a place like Hong Kong. And more importantly, you know that a guy like John Woo, an action master, has the most respect for Walter Hill. So he probably was like, I want to use the music from Red Heat. It's perfect. Exactly. You know? And it's Walter <laughs> Hill. And like." He's, the, he's, he's a great action filmmaker. But, you know, there was a stretch for a few years where Hong Kong was routinely running rings around American action movies. Like, a typical Hong Kong movie was more exciting than an American movie trying at full tilt to get up to that level. No, I, absolutely. And that's why I was...
1: Look, I, I don't know what happened with John Woo and the movie Paycheck starring... Ben Affleck, I have no idea what happened. Maybe he slept through that movie. Maybe there was too much pseudo interference. I have no idea. I'm not talking about that movie. I'm talking about all the other movies that came before it. Yes, even Wind Talkers, where it was the <laughs> Jean Wu work in Hollywood era of the Jean Wu filmography. And yeah. whoever decided that that needed to come to a close, as opposed to continuing to go forever, is a war criminal. Whoever decided that American action movies didn't all need to be face-off, or hard target, or broken arrow, is a monster.
0: Yeah, no, I know, it's a sad story, and I think his American career ended when Paycheck bombed. And you can tell that John Woo's not in control of that movie. You can tell that he's playing the hits was how I felt while I was watching Paycheck.
1: I mean, at the time when I saw that movie in uh, a United Artists theater uh, somewhere outside Washington, D.C., I was such a John Woo enthusiast and fan that I kept lying to myself that I liked this movie, even though I was (laughs) screaming in my head at the top of my lungs while I'm watching the entire movie. Who made this movie and slapped John Woo's name on it? This is a swatch that you just, like, wrote the word Rolex in crayon on.
0: My love for John Woo is so strong that I don't want to see him phoning it in, you know, so I didn't see Paycheck for the longest time.
1: Right. It's like seeing uh, Michelangelo, uh, like, paint the interior of a McDonald's arch or
0: something like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's heartbreaking. I'll tell you, I saw The Killer at the Toronto Film Festival when it played in 1989, and when it was over, I got another ticket and watched the next screening of it because I could not believe my eyes. I had never seen a movie this this much fun in my life. I know. <laughs> it, and I got his autograph. It, I, I never asked for autographs, but when John Woo came to tiff again to do hard boiled i ran up onto the stage and got him to sign my program book
1: <laughs> please tell me he was a nice guy about it he, he was a nice guy about it excellent i mean i shook yeah, he's, i shook his hand
0: you son of a bitch <laughs> i don't have that many heroes left uh pol- political or cultural there's nobody i would ask for their autograph but i did get john Wu's he, autograph yeah absolutely he's 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 got to be a top
1: three for me right now. You got uh, Martin Scorsese, Jean Wu, um, <laughs> uh, uh, Barry of Barry and the Remains, and maybe those are the only three people who I would ask for their autograph <laughs> for if I could.
0: Swin, it was so great to have you on the show. Um, where can people find you on Twitter? They can find me uh, at swin24
1: on twitter.com.
0: Swin, uh, thank you so much for joining me. It was wonderful talking to you. Please come back anytime. Jesse, it was an honor being here. Um, Anytime you want me back, just let me know. Before we go, just a reminder that we do have a Patreon. Patrons get access to additional bonus episodes every month. Our next Patreon episode will be dropping in a few days. My guest is the screenwriter, Brendan Gallagher. We're going to be discussing two toxic masculinity Westerns. Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog and John Ford's The Searchers. To become a patron, please go to patreon.com junkfilter, and please follow us on Twitter at junkfilterpod. The original music for this program was provided by Marker Starling. My name is Jesse Hawken, and thank you for listening.